From PhD TV, this is the audio feed. My name's Lawrence, and I'm here in the studio today with Evans, Crystal, and Zach. Uh, Starbucks, I haven't which eaten is lunch always yet, the same order. Of a grande, not that caramel macchiato with a single pump of vanilla syrup. Burns my mouth. And extra caramel on top. They'll be back later in the show. But first, I have an earth shaking story for you. Boo. Yeah, that was kind of a bad pun. Almost immediately after putting up our last show, there was a troubling piece of news. Seismologist convicted of manslaughter for not warning public about earthquake. Will science ever recover? The story tonight at 8. Okay, maybe it wasn't exactly like that. But it was kind of a big deal. And as the details about the case trickled in, I got the sense that I was missing something. Why were these scientists on trial in the first place? Manslaughter charges for an unpredictable natural disaster? There was something about that that left me unsettled. It took a good amount of work, sifting through news reports, translating documents and recordings that were in Italian. But I finally found out what happened. And it wasn't the story I thought it would be. There was a false prophet, a patsy, and a mastermind. Uh, sort of. At the center of this case is an earthquake, a magnitude 6.3, that killed just over 300 people on April 6, 2009. And last month, Six scientists and one bureaucrat were sentenced to six years in prison, each, and they were also ordered to pay a multi-million euro fine. While the ruling judge's rationale hasn't been released yet, the consensus belief is that they were convicted of failing to communicate the risk of that earthquake. The operative term here being the word communicate, not the word risk. The L'Aquila 7, as they were known, were the members of the Grand Ricci Commission. Grand Ricci, I learned, is Italian for major risks. They had been called together on March 31st, 2009, for a special meeting to, um, assess the risk of a major quake. And as you might have guessed, they didn't predict that big one that struck a week later. But that March 31st meeting and the events surrounding it are why the L'Aquila 7 went to trial. Let me back up a bit. The meeting didn't come out of nowhere. L'Aquila, as it turns out, sits squarely in the middle of Italian earthquake country. And towards the end of 2008 and the beginning of 2009, there were an unusually high number of quakes, even for that region. Something like 69 tremors in January, and another 78 in February. Most of these were barely felt, but there would be the occasional quake close to magnitude 3, which prompted schools to evacuate. L'Aquila was in the midst of a seismic swarm. Now imagine yourself in that situation. If the ground shakes underneath you every couple days, wouldn't you be freaking out a little? You live in earthquake country, so you know the big one's coming. It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of when. And now March rolls around. Enter Giampaolo Giuliani. Isn't that a great Italian name? Anyway, Giuliani is a technician working up the hill in Gran Sasso. He says he's been able to predict some of these earthquakes by measuring the radon gas coming out of nearby faults. And he correctly predicts an earthquake on March 27th in L'Aquila. Sort of. It was a magnitude 2.3. Still, to the outsider, it sounds like a successful prediction. So when Giuliani called up the mayor of a nearby town to warn him of an imminent earthquake that was supposed to take place on March 29th, the mayor took him seriously. Crews assembled. Warnings were broadcast over loudspeakers. And there was a panic. But the earthquake never showed up. This was bad. 
So bad, in fact, that the Italian Civil Protection Agency issued a gagging injunction for Giuliani the very next day. And later that day, as if to spite that injunction, there was an earthquake, a magnitude 4.1. And this was the largest quake yet. People started to get really scared about this seismic swarm. So that evening, the Civil Protection Agency calls a meeting. This is the uh, infamous March 31st meeting I mentioned earlier. To place the seismic swarm into context. Do these tremors actually pretend something worse? Or are we, the residents, overreacting? That's quite a hefty task. And yet, the meeting lasted only an hour. Well, that's weird. And what the residents of L'Aquila saw on the news later that night was a statement from the bureaucrat, Bernardo de Bernardinis, telling them that the small quakes were actually a good thing. The system's releasing its energy, he said. So kick back with a glass of wine, because there's no danger of an earthquake. And that was March 31st. The big quake, if we remember, struck on April 6th. And here is where it gets really weird. When the big one hit, the minutes of the March 31st meeting still hadn't been released yet. It turns out that the televised proclamation of no earthquake danger was made before the meeting even happened. In other words, the statement wasn't based on expert testimony. So what was it based on? Did it just come out of thin air? There was a phone call, the night of March 30th, from the head of the Civil Protection Agency to a city council member in L'Aquila. He was telling her about the meeting of experts he had just called. His deputy, one Bernardo de Bernardinis, was going to run the meeting. It needs to be a public relations event, he said. This is normal. These phenomena happen. Tremors are useful for dispersing energy, so there will never be the dangerous quake. We are doing this not because we are worried, but because we want to reassure people. Instead of you and me having a conversation, the best seismologists will talk tomorrow. So in the end, the words so much associated with the Grand Ricci Commission, those most responsible for putting the scientists on trial, in fact came from the Civil Protection Agency, not the commission at all. It was a PR stunt. Yeah, that happened. The Civil Protection Agency had made a choice to debunk the claims of a counterfeit oracle, one Giampaolo Giuliani, by convening that panel of experts for show, just to calm everyone down. No earthquake, no crime, right? But they were wrong. So you could say that there's some amount of justice in the Italian court's ruling. De Bernardinis was convicted of manslaughter as one of the L'Aquila Seven. And as of January of this year, his boss, the now former director of the Civil Protection Agency, is facing manslaughter charges too. But the absence of wrongdoing doesn't exactly absolve the scientists of any responsibility. I mean, why didn't they do anything to rebut what the bureaucrats were saying? As far as I can tell, there were no attempts to correct the official statement. They had a whole week to do it. Someone should have spoken up. There's always going to be a question of accountability. You could blame the randomness of earthquakes, the claims of a false prophet, or that sham of a meeting. And I can't help but wonder, what else could have been done differently? Where did the communication break down? 
can you hear me very well at all? Uh, yeah, you, you kind of sound like you're underwater, though. So I called up my friend Sam, who used to work in the insurance industry, to see what his take on this was. My, my read of this is that it looks like a committee of experts were called to do a risk assessment. They determined that the risk was normal for that region, and that result was miscommunicated as safe. He argued that normal is kind of a loaded word. The normal risk of an earthquake in earthquake country is actually pretty high. And that's the norm they're talking about. I see. It was actually communicated to be the opposite of the norm. So somehow the normal state was not... Problem, right? Right? Let's... Normal is a really dangerous word to use. Because a normal day doesn't involve an earthquake. When we say normal in English, what we, what we are saying is not average. In English, normal and average are synonymous. In statistics, normal is the mode. It is the most common situation. And most importantly, it doesn't specify the situation. Say you're rolling a six-sided die. I can say, hey, there's not a higher than normal chance. There's no reason to expect a six here. And you can roll a six and I'll still be correct. Yeah, but that seems like you're, you know, you're having your cake and eating it too. That seems, I mean, there's no accountability, right? No, I, I concur that I'm, we're not just rolling dice here. We're rolling a die, and on a one through five, nothing happens. On a six, our town is destroyed. So would you advocate teaching, I mean, this is kind of a subtle thing that you have to... Yeah, you know, I think... Yeah, it is subtle, and it's there's an art to it, I think, and it's it's um it's not easy. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, what do you, what do you think? Thanks again to Sam Marcus and to Lisa Walsh for help with some of the Italian translations. And now the rest of the news. Set your code to compile and get ready for news at the speed of a supercomputer's Q-line. I'm Crystal Dilworth. I'm Zach Tobin. And I'm Evans Boney. German physicists have finally cooled a collection of fluoromethane molecules to ultra-cold temperatures of 29 millikelvin. How do they celebrate? With a nice ultra-cold beer, of course. The graduate student who led the study called their technique the Sisyphus method, (sighs) after the ancient Greek king who was punished to an eternity of pushing a boulder up a hill only to watch it roll down again. The molecules mimic that repeated motion to get from merely cold to ultra-cold. Sounds like someone's bitter about grad school. A PNS study of... Uh, You mean proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, right? Yes. A PNAS study of chimpanzees and orangutans found that they are sad, withdrawn, and frustrated in the middle of their lives, similar to the midlife crises experienced by many humans. On hearing of the study, Arnold Schwarzenegger immediately responded, No! Humans do not have a midlife crisis! Boo! Hey, Zach, how old are your pants? My jeans were hand-woven by artisans in France 200 years ago. They're Levi's. Right. Well, the truth beats even your ridiculous exaggeration. The University of Innsbruck has discovered the world's four oldest brassiers in the Austrian castle of Longburg, dating back to the 15th century. As with contemporary designs, these undergarments were made of cotton, had shoulder straps, and were completed with lace and embroidery. Apparently, lingerie hasn't changed that much in 500 years. (laughs) Much like your dance moves. Well, this is all fascinating, really. (laughs) Very fascinating. What do these ancient intimates tell us? Well, it's general knowledge that throughout the Victorian era and before, wealthier women wore corsets to accentuate their womanly figures. (laughs) 
Bras did not gain much popular support until late in the 19th century when they finally sunk their hooks in. Seriously? This discovery, of course, tells us that bras were used considerably earlier than previously believed. Now, this has to be bad news for the denizens of Bad Konstadt, the district in Stuttgart. They had claimed to be the birthplace of the bra, and were planning a centennial celebration of the first bras being mass-produced in 1914. But they shouldn't quit. They can recommit and knit another bit to fit that. That concludes this installment of a totally tasteful retrospective on feminine clothing. Yes. I'm sorry. You may giggle like schoolboys now. (laughs) Bras. We we said bras. Did you hear about the new autism studies? As a neuroscientist, if you say vaccines cause autism, I'm going to strangle you. No, no. It's corn syrup. Corn syrup? Yeah, it seems the mercury is present in unusually high concentrations in high fructose corn syrup, and children with autism have an impaired ability to rid the body of heavy metals. (sighs) So we have yet another reason to cut our sugar intake. This is really going to put a damper on my red vines addiction. This study comes to us courtesy of Dr. Party Pooper, sworn arch nemesis of Dr. Pepper. And now, a conference report from our magniloquent plasma physics correspondent, Zach Tobin. At the end of October, a hurricane of plasma physicists arrived with a hurricane of Sandy for the annual APS-DPP conference in Providence, Rhode Island. That's the American Physical Society's Department of Plasma Physics. Topics of discussion ranged from the physics of the sun to magnetic field topology to new diagnostic equipment, but the perennial crowd-pleaser, even amongst the scientific community, was... The power of the sun in the palm of my hand. Fusion. How do we confine it? How do we control it? How do we measure it? How do we maintain our funding? Dr. Octavius couldn't answer these questions without almost destroying New York. But are these questions even relevant? Or is fusion just a myth, like zero-point energy, Bigfoot, and magnets? Well, I found a recent graduate of fusion science at this conference to defend his duplicitous field of research. Joining us via Skype is Arturo Dominguez, postdoctoral scholar at the Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory. Arturo, welcome to the program. Hey, Zach. Thanks for having me. So I've heard this term fusion thrown around a lot these days. So my first question is, what's the big deal? Fusion has not been really um, into the public's mind uh, as much as we believe it, it should. It is almost, almost a limitless, limitless amount of energy because all it needs is uh, seawater and lithium. It's not radioactive. It doesn't have a lot of the problems that fission does. It doesn't create carbon dioxide. Well, you know, they say when something sounds too good to be true, it usually is. Well, we firmly believe that fusion is uh, as good as it sounds. Really? I have a friend whose professor has a colleague who says he can prove thermodynamically that fusion isn't a viable form of energy. But... For the sake of argument, could you attempt to explain to our listeners how fusion is supposed to work? Well, I don't know about your friend's uh, professor's uh, colleague, because the, the energy that's produced from the sun is from fusion. When you've got very small particles like hydrogen atoms or isotopes of hydrogen, and they fuse together, they combine, that's an exothermic reaction that uh, releases a lot of energy. And the, what we want to do is to try to harness that energy here on Earth. Well, that doesn't sound so hard. Heck, I fused this leftover turkey here with two pieces of bread and made myself a delicious sandwich this morning. <laughs> a delicious sandwich that fueled me with clean energy. So why can't you fuse two stinking hydrogen atoms together? 
well, it's not as easy as putting a turkey sandwich together because... But it's smaller. Shouldn't it be easier? But your turkey sandwich doesn't want to repel all the other components. When you're trying to fuse together two, um, two nuclei of hydrogen, you know, the, the, the positive charge of each try to repel each other from the Coulomb repulsion. So what we really need to do is to heat the hydrogen. In our case, it's actually deuterium and tritium. We need to get it really, really hot you know, as hot as the inside of the sun and even hotter. We need to contain it here on Earth and then get the fusion reactions going. So what you're saying is that it's practically impossible. Not impossibly impossible, just impossible. No, no. It's, it's, it's difficult, but it is not impossible. And we've actually created megawatts of power, of fusion power. Wait, we're generating megawatts of energy? Isn't that it? We've reached our goal. We won. I mean, these have been megawatts of power in, in cases in which we've been putting in more, much more than that into it. We need to get to a point in which we have a large enough device, a, a device that's big enough and hot enough that we can actually get enough power out, more power out than we actually are putting into it. So going back to my turkey sandwich analogy, it's like my turkey sandwich is at the top of Mount Everest, and I have to climb all the way up there to eat it. But you are making an elevator, so I don't have to work as hard to get to it. Man, I'm hungry. <laughs> That's kind of like what, what you're saying. I'm not really sure how that qualifies, but okay. <laughs> okay, so we know the challenge is, how long till we have our turkey sandwich elevators, or fusion reactors, on the grid? Well, that's a good question. Um, there's um, right now an international effort called ITER, which is a big tokamak that is currently being built in France. A tokamak is uh, a device that's been used all around the world to magnetically confine plasma. Uh, we feel pretty confident that, that this is going to happen. And this experiment is being currently built and will be getting results in about 10 to 15 years. And if everything goes well, within 30 to 40 years, we'll, we'll be having uh, fusion power in our grid. First off, calling it eater, not making me any less hungry. <laughs> Second... 30 to 40 years? You guys have been working on this stuff for 65 years. And back then, you said it was only 20 years away. The gap's getting bigger. Yeah. How do you catch something that's always 20 to 40 years away? Well, there's uh, been a misconception about this uh, always being 20 and 30 years. Wait, uh, is this like when I was a kid and my parents made me do the dishes, telling me I understand when I'm older? Only now I have a dishwasher and never have to do the dishes again, so their point is completely lost on me? Um, I think it's nothing like that, Zach. I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, what's been going on is that the money to do the research has really not been provided. There's really, we're constantly underfunded. We should be doing parallel experiments um, to be studying different parts of what we need for a fusion reactor, like the material sciences, the actual plasma um, physics, uh, heating schemes, all of this. So if we spend more money, we'll be able to do more things? Let me know how that works out for you. I'm going to go ride my unicorn across a rainbow bridge onto Leprechaun Island, where dreams come true and we can all wish upon a star. Well, that's all we have time for. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks a lot. Thanks to you, Sack. I hope you can get your turkey sandwich. Hey, you see that new Incredible Hulk movie? You mean The Avengers? Uh, no, the one with Ed Norton in it. 
So new as in four years ago. 2008 was already four years ago? That's not the point. What I'm getting at is that in it, the Hulk's backstory is that he was trying out an attempt to recreate the super soldier formula that made Captain America. Nuh-uh. Everyone knows the Hulk was made because he was exposed to too much gamma radiation. Exactly. His origin story was changed for the 2008 movie, and that's called retroactive continuity, or retconning. So, too, has a great origin story been changed today. You mean the bra thing? We already covered that. No. Something far grander. (gasps) The moon. (laughs) Dun-dun-dun! Sorry. What I understand from comic books, uh, textbooks, is that the moon was formed by a collision between Earth and another small planet called Theia, with the moon being debris that was knocked off. Well, these previous models couldn't reconcile the moon's chemical similarities to Earth. But now, Sarah Stewart and Madia Chuk have a new model of how the moon was formed. That's lunacy! Of course! See, they theorize that the Earth was spinning fast in its younger years. So fast that the day was only about two or three hours long. But that all changed when it collided with Theia. The impact slowed it down and ejected the particles that would later form the moon. Particles that would not have been ejected from an Earth spinning as fast as it does today. Like a planetary centrifuge. Obviously. Also in the model, resonance between the moon, the Earth, and the sun helped to slow the Earth down to its modern spin of 24-ish hours per day. So you're telling me that the authors of the moon's origin story had put in details that ultimately contradicted each other? And that forced future writers to pen something more ridiculous and complicated to account for the contradictions? Yes, except unlike Jean Grey's many twins, the science has to ultimately remain self-consistent. Excelsior! It turns out even hermits can be social. Berkeley biologists have found that land hermit crabs exchange shells with other nearby hermit crabs. That's a nice shell, y'all. This exchange is not entirely voluntary, though, because some hermit crabs evict others from their shells in order to move into roomier ones. Hey, what are you doing? Wow, really? Do they, like, pull, or do they get in there with their huge claw and pry the other one out? I think they just get plucked out. See, roomy shells are hard to come by on land because you have to wait for something to come in with the tide. Anyone see any snails around here? Every time more than three crabs get together, there's a conga line that forms smallest to largest. It's a chance to trade up. Hey, that guy's got a big shell. Let's get it. Oh, so it's a group ruled by its smallest member. And the biggest one is left with the smallest shell? Oh, man. Yep. And that means it has to carve out that smaller shell before it moves in. Should have just hired a contractor. And, in case that wasn't bad enough, a lot of the time the big crabs get eaten before they can finish the job. By a bird, a lizard, or some other opportunistic critter. It's how a lot of land-based hermit crabs get eaten. Yikes. I guess it pays to be number two. So if you're listening to us from a sub-basement somewhere, we encourage you to stay put and continue your antisocial lifestyle. It may be the only way to survive. Isn't everyone really looking for a shell in their lives? A place to start a family, a place to live, but still be free enough to adventure. Isn't that the hermit crab in all of us? Now, get busy! Well, that's our show for today. Tune in next time for more news at the speed of academic publication. And until then, remember, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the precipitate. This podcast was produced by Lawrence Young. Oh, sorry, Young. <laughs> Written by Evans Boney, Jack Tobin, and Lawrence Young. Special thanks to Jorge Cham, I love him. Crystal Dilworth, Lisa Walsh, Sam Marcus, Meg Rosenberg, and Arturo Dominguez. The opening theme was composed by Michael Gallant. And performed by Michael Gallant and Lawrence Young. For more information about Michael, go to gallantmusic.com. This podcast is distributed by PhD TV for Piled Higher and Deeper Publishing. Piled Higher and Deeper Publishing is a limited liability company.